This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. My name is Christy Shriver. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Christy is an advanced placement and international baccalaureate teacher, and she's also a nationally board certified English teacher. Gary is an APIB history and psychology teacher, and my husband. Today, we're walking through chapters 20 through 24 of The Scarlet Letter. Christy looks at these stories from the perspective of a literature teacher and lover of words. Gary, it looks at what they may mean, historically, psychologically, or just randomly. So, coming to you from Memphis, Tennessee, let's move on to Episode 5 of What's So Great About the Scarlet Letter. The title of this episode is The Revelation and Conclusion of the Scarlet Letter. Quickly recapping, Episode 1, we met Puritan Boston in the 1600s and what was at the heart of their society according to Hawthorne's 19th century perspective. In episode two, we went through chapters two through eight, meeting Hester, Dimsdale, and Chillingsworth on the scaffold with baby Pearl at only three months old. Episode three, we delve into the relationship between Dimsdale and Chillingworth, culminating with Chillingworth confirming the identity of Dimsdale and Dimsdale seeking redemption on the scaffold in the middle of the night. In episode four, we see the strength of Hester. She confronts both Chillingsworth and Dimsdale and forces the secret into the open, delving into responsibility taking and changing the game. Today, we visit the scaffold for the last time, and the family unites in front of the village, and there is an aftermath afterwards. We will discuss the meaning of the letter, the role of Mistress Hibbins, and some final thoughts on what it all means. So, Gary, start us off with your thoughts on Chapter 20, The Minister in the Maze. Uh, This is a great chapter. This is Dimsdale's emotional transformation and his liberation. He's been under the psychological domination of Chillingsworth for several chapters. He has met with Hester. They've discussed the idea that they have options and they can run away and start a new life, potentially. So after their meeting in the forest, he comes back to town, a transformed man, ready to change things. And uh, he comes back, and uh, the the literature says uh, he was not the person that went into the woods. He's come back very differently now. And so we're going to see him, the liberated new minister, and how he's going to react with the, uh, the townspeople. 
And we also see uh, what I think is kind of interesting. Well, let's go back. I don't want to skip over because it's kind of funny. He does interact with some, with some townspeople, and he it doesn't really mean anything in terms of deep philosophical meaning, but Hawthorne writes his return back to town, and he encounters all these people that are important to him, some deacons and some little old women, and he does stuff that's um, impish, so to speak, or um, devilish, and I think it's kind of funny. He doesn't actually maybe do the stuff, but he thinks about doing things like um, teaching them dirty words or or things that he would never, ever imagine to do in, in real life. All of which, I think, are symptoms of his feelings of liberation because uh, the book says that he has come back to town and the transformation has lent him an unaccustomed physical energy. And this is a guy who everywhere he appeared in town always looked on death's door and people expected him to drop dead at any moment. Now he's coming back with all kinds of vitality. He's speaking to people in the streets and he's tempted to say, really rude and crude um, Freudian types of things to them. And it's funny, all the encounters that go on. And, of course, he ends up by running into Mistress Hibbins, who cackles at him and goes, Ha, 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 ha! Well, we must needs talk this in the daytime. You carry it off like an old hand, but at midnight in the forest we shall have another talk together. As if, you know, she's done something naughty and only she knows about it. And, of course, he thinks he's done naughty, too. He actually says, oh, he'd made a bargain, tempted by a dream of happiness. He had yielded himself, and it says, with deliberate choice, as he had never done before, to what he knew was a deadly sin. What do you think he thinks the deadly sin is? I'm not really sure, but looking at his actions, apparently he's totally unaccustomed to just saying what comes into his mind. This guy is always continually self-editing and self-controlling and always kept himself under wraps. And the slightest little glee, like making uh, an off-color joke, seems like an outrageous uh, break of character for him. So would you suggest that he's not really free of sin like he's telling himself, but he's free of fear? Most definitely. And he's free of some degree of guilt. He's also, in my estimation, free of some degree of hopelessness. And a lot of this joy is springing out of this idea that he's come across that he has an opportunity. He has a life that he can have that was not possible to him in previous chapters. So it ends with him running home. He's walking in the door, and he, uh, the physician, of course, welcomes him. Welcome home, Reverend Sir. Uh, and how found you that godly man, the Apostle Elliot, who I don't really know who that is. He says, I think you kind of uh, look pale. And he kind of, you know, references what happened out there. And, of course, Chillingworth looks at the minister, and it says he knew uh, that in the minister's regard, he was no longer a trusted friend, but his bitterest enemy. Chillingsworth, the always intuitive narcissist, always checking the emotional weather of his victim all the time. And he right away understands the jig is up and that Dimsdale is making some kind of an emotional break from his control. And it's so funny. They have this really phony conversation like polite enemies do uh, about, oh, I joy to hear it. And this is what the physician says when 
He says, I'm not going to take your pills anymore. It may be that my remedies so long administered in vain begin now to take due effect. Happy man were I and well deserving of New England's gratitude. Could I achieve this cure? And then Dimsdale mentions that he will pray for Chillingsworth and Chillingsworth, who understands the whole game has shifted underneath him, replies, a good man's prayers are golden recompense. In other words, we're doing all this polite dancing around the obvious at this point. So the game has changed. The worm has turned. Whatever phrase you want to use, it's a different ball game now. They crash for the night. And at the end of the chapter, it says morning came and peeping, blushing through the curtains. And at last sunrise threw a golden beam into the study and laid it right across the minister's bedazzled eyes. There he was, with the pen still between his fingers, as in he had been writing his sermon, a new sermon he ripped up the old one, and a vast, immeasurable track of written space behind him. He's a man on fire at this point, and he has not been a man on fire throughout the whole entire book. So chapter uh, 21, it's a holiday in New England, and of course... Hawthorne never ceases to take digs at the pitiful way that the Puritans celebrate, if you want to call it that, their lives. He never gives the Puritans a pass, and and he makes fun of the way they even celebrate something as uh, inane as this holiday of of a change in government. And he makes a comment about the Puritans the Puritans compressed whatever mirth and public joy they deemed allowable to human infirmity, thereby so far dispelling the customary cloud that for the space of a single holiday, they appeared scarcely more grave than most other communities at a period of general affliction. <laughs> My understanding is he's basically saying these people have such a hard time having a good time that when they have a good time, you barely could tell the difference between that and a society that was being afflicted. And he goes on to say, the persons now in the marketplace of Boston had not been born to an inheritance of puritanic gloom. They were native Englishmen whose fathers had lived in the sunny richness of the Elizabethan epoch, a time when the life of England viewed as one great mass would appear to have been as stately, magnificent, and joyous as the world has ever witnessed. Had they followed their hereditary taste the New England settlers would have illustrated all events of public importance by bonfires, banquets, pageantries, and processions. In other words, he's given them a grade of F in their ability to celebrate and have a party. And I find that well, I'm just interested in understanding that uh, that he's always picking on the Puritans. What I want to point out right here is the fact that the Puritans are a frontier society these are people who've lived on the edge of a howling wilderness their entire existence. And so to compare them to all the fun and excitement of England, I think, is is being too harsh on them again. But I'm defending the Puritans once again against Hawthorne. Well, I mean, perhaps so. But there is the sternness that he felt, maybe even his own day, I don't know, of the harsh re- religious criticism and this tamping down a celebration as if it were in and of itself evil. I think, I don't know, perhaps is is unfair. Maybe it's not even unfair to this day in certain circles. I think that the Puritans are just his straw man for the story. Oh, no doubt. 
Moving on, um, Pearl, of course, uh, flitters around like a bird and, again, tries to call out the minister. Will the minister be there? And will he hold both of our hands when, when that lets me to him from the brookside? And, of course, the mom's like, he will be there, but he won't be with us, blah, blah, blah. And, of course, uh, it gets to the point where she finally says, just be quiet, Pearl. Thou understandest not these things. Think not now of the minister, but look about thee and see how cheery is everybody's face. And, of course, uh, we're, we're, they pan to the crowd, and we see all these people. Uh, and, of course, um, one of these people uh, is Chillingworth. And he comes in, and it points out that he comes in. And it's only interesting because he talks to a commander of a questionable vessel. And this uh, this same dude, the same commander of the vessel, happens, we find out later, uh, to be a friend of Hester. She had done some work with some people on the ship, and he approaches Hester. Now, it goes on to say that wherever Hester was, and I find this interesting, a circle of space, a vacant area, a sort of magic circle had formed itself about her. In other words, she had cooties. <laughs> I mean, it's a crowded spot, but wherever she is, there's space. Uh, they don't get so he, except for this guy. So he comes up to her, and uh, they had made a deal. We find out, and he says, "Hester, I got some news. Um, are you ready for your trip?" She goes, "Yes." And he goes, "There's another passenger on the board. You're going to be so happy. He's a physician." And of course, just as he says this. Chillingworth makes eye contact with her and gives him this kind of smirk um, just to let her know you, you, you can run, but I'm coming. What a hateful moment. Can you imagine her despair when she realizes that this snake is going to get on the ship with them when they make their escape? And I'd also like to point out, it really highlights Chillingworth's determination to control and dominate Dimsdale, which is psychopathic. And it goes to an unreasonable extent. You can't chase somebody to another continent. That's not really practical, but it doesn't matter. Well, if you're a narcissist and you feel like you have ownership of that person, you can do whatever it takes to get control of that person and feel justified in doing so. Well, we'll see. Because in Chapter 22, we have the procession. Now, apparently, this is a big deal uh, in their culture. First, you have some music, you have uh, some military, then you have some magistrates. And then following all this processional, you're going to get the priest or the preacher uh, kind of as, I don't know. He's not, there's no king, but he's definitely the religious leader. He's the one that's going to be the star of this particular event. And so he follows everybody up uh, and it was observed as they see him kind of going through the processional, that he's not the same minister they'd known before. It describes him as having no feebleness of step as at other times. His frame was not bent. And which is most interesting, his hand did not rest upon his heart. If the clergyman were rightly viewed, his strength seemed not of the body, it might be spiritual and imparted to him by, of course, angelic ministrations. I think it's uh, important to point out that as he's highlighting Dimsdale's newfound character, 
he takes a moment to describe uh, the crowd that contrasts with Dimsdales. He talks about the musicians in the parade, comprised of a variety of instruments, perhaps imperfectly adapted to one another and played with no great skill. <laughs> so the parade musicians are poor. Then he talks about the magistrates and the leaders, that they possess stability and dignity, but they don't possess intelligence. <laughs> they have uh, been not often brilliant, but distinguished by a ponderous sobriety rather than activity of intellect. So you have a crowd that plods along with low talents, low abilities, low impressiveness, and then the preacher strides into this group with... But all... high pride, would you not say? Pardon me? High pride. High pride? Yes. Low abilities, but high pride. Well, according to Hawthorne, they <laughs> had more pride than was due their accomplishments, for sure. And interestingly enough, at the part of this discussion right here... He takes one more stab at the Puritans. I just feel like I have to point these out. I'm not even defending the Puritans. I'm just highlighting Hawthorne's disdain for them. In this first few uh, paragraphs of this chapter, he talks about political power, and he talks about Increase Mather. Increase Mather was one of the leading preachers of the Congregationalist Puritanical movement during that time period. He is going to have this family lineage of his his brothers and his children, which will be renowned pastors and preachers throughout Massachusetts and the whole Congregationalist Church. You mean like in real life? In real life. Mm -hmm. uh, it's interesting to me that out of nowhere, he's walking along, he's talking, he's telling a story, and then he says... Even political power, as in the case of Increase Mather, was within the grasp of a successful priest. Increase Mather was a contemporary to Hawthorne's grandfather. And Increase Mather and Hawthorne's grandfather would have known each other at the Salem Witch Trials. And Increase Mather had kind of a mixed record on his support for the prosecution of the people during this time period. So this is another stab at those who had an actual real-life historical hand in the so witch trials. basically saying any schmuck could be elevated in this group of loonies, so Any schmuck, as long as they're a, a congregationalist Puritan preacher. Oh, okay. I think he's trying to make the point there. Well, I notice, and I think most girls would, that Hester watches all this and it's a, and she's not excited about it. It says her spirit sank with the idea that all must have been a delusion and that vividly as she had dreamed it, there could be no real bond betwixt the clergyman and herself. And thus much of the woman was there in Hester and she could scarcely forgive him, suggesting like, this is this really the dude that was back in the forest? It's not the same person. He is not. He's not at all. She's amazed by that. She's even unnerved by his confidence. She's used to loving a man that had no confidence. And a cross pearl says, Mother, was that the same minister that kissed me by the brook? Everybody's amazed at this newfound pastor. And then we get to Mistress Hibbins. And I want to take a minute to talk about her in length. I have struggled for a long time trying to figure out what is her purpose in the story? You know, she has a name. She's an important person to some degree, but I, I fail to see her connection to Hester and Demsdale and Chillingworth in the same way 
as you, as, as clearly as you see the, the the connection that clearly exists between the other three. How do you view uh, the role of Mistress Hibbins in the book? She's a, a very compelling character. She seems to show up from time to time just to to say things like, "I know what's going on." I, you haven't spoken publicly, but I perceive the evil that's going on behind the scenes. And then she can never really deliver on it. But what seems to come out over time, to me, she seems to be just as evil as the church people. Now, she's the antithesis of the church people. She's the witch in the woods, but she has the same manipulative desire to feel like that she can shame and control Hester. And I find that fascinating. I don't know if that was Hawthorne's intention when he wrote the book, but he certainly shows that whether you are a fine, godly Christian or you are a heathen pagan, you're both capable of the same behaviors. They both look down on her. I mean, she has this arrogance of her atheism. I mean, it talks about how she taunts them, saying, I'm going to ride my broom. Well, she wasn't really riding a broom, but... In a sense, she uh, is judging Hester yes. mm-hmm. with no less of condemnation. She's almost saying, "You don't. Why don't you come here and openly do this, just like I do?" And you, you know, almost the way um, people do today when they try to to live in a way that's esoteric and and condescending to regular uh, regular people. Well, we see that they both have a disdain for each other, both groups, the churchgoers and the atheists, but they both exhibit the same exact kind of arrogance in their disdain for each other. So one is no better than the other at the end of the day. And the only person who rises above all of it is the focus of everybody's ire, which is Hester. Uh, So one more time we see her, and of course at this particular point we spend a couple of pages watching her taunt Hester saying, I know, I know what you did. I know what you did. And and she kind of takes pride in this. And it's not a friendly, I know what you did. Can I help you? It's uh, a taunting, fie, woman, fie. Dost thou think I have been to the forest so many times and yet have no skill to judge who else has been there? It's almost defensive to some degree. And then she, of course, says, you wear it, thou wearest it openly, so there need no question about they, that. But this minister, let me tell thee in thine ear. When the black man sees one of his own servants, signed and scaled, so shy of owning to the bond, as is the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, he hath the way of ordering matters so that the mark shall be disclosed in open daylight to the eyes of the world. And of course, she's not wrong, but it's just not kind. No, it's not. And, and not only that, it's not necessary Hester has no relationship with Mistress Hibbins. When Mistress Hibbins walks up to her and demands information and demands knowledge and demands truth, why on earth is Hester obligated in any way to give her any information whatsoever? It's really fascinating that this witch of the woods feels like she can just walk up and demand this woman that has no relationship with to tell her deepest, darkest secrets. Which in an allegorical sense, and of course there's so many debates that don't matter if this is an allegory book or if it's just a symbolic book. But at the end of the day, it's clear, I think, that he's making these stock characters to symbolize, you know, P- 
people ways that people relate to each other in the real world. And she clearly demonstrates, if you want to say, a straw man on the other side of the way that that people do try to tell me what you did, tell me what you did, uh, kind of thinking in, in an unkind sort of way. Well, and that's what makes literary characters interesting. All right, so moving on, she gets past Mistress Hibbins, thankfully. Uh, and uh, during this time, I think it's important to point out the position of all the characters. Of course, we have Hester. She's going to stand statue-like at the foot of the scaffold. If the minister's voice had not kept her there, there would nevertheless have been an inevitable magnetism at that spot. Little Pearl, meanwhile, had quitted her mother's side and was playing at her own will about the marketplace. So this is interesting because when the story started, of course, these two were on top of the scaffold and he was in the balcony. And of course, uh, now uh, there she is again, except for Pearl's flitting away. Uh, demon child as she is. She's running and looked at wild Indians in the face and just doing uh, funny, crazy things as she is prone to do. So, to sum up what happens in this chapter, uh, as they're all at the scaffold, D- Dimsdale is coming out. He's the uh, the the center of uh, hero worship after he's getting ready to give this sermon. And Hester is surrounded by the crowd. They have all taken an interest in her, and she is now in the center of curiosity and public mocking once again, and he walks up on the scene. Oh, and I, this is what I meant to point out. I forgot a minute ago. Pearl runs up to Mistress Hibbins, and Mistress Hibbins tells her that her father is the prince of the air, which is another way to say Satan. Wonderful woman. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Your daddy's the devil. <laughs> I know, and of course, he doesn't phase Pearl. She goes, hoo-hoo, okay. And she has a naughty smile. If thou callest me that ill name, I shall tell him of thee, and he will chase thy ship with a tempest. Oh, so my she goodness. brings it back. You cannot corner that girl. No, I love that. All right, so here we go. It is the moment of truth. The revelation. There's the minister, uh, Reverend Dimsdale, comes up. And of course, he 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 ascends um, Hester Prynne. Stand, he ascends to the pulpit. Hester Prynne standing beside the scaffold of the pillory, of course, with the scarlet letter still burning on her chest. We hear some music, um, and of course, the fanfare of him getting up to his pulpit to speak is amazing. And it says it finally culminates in. Never on New England soil had stood the man so honored by his mortal breath, brethren as the preacher. Oh, the sermon he gives on this day is apparently unmatched. Um, Hawthorne says, according to their united testimony, never had man spoken in so wise, so high, and so holy a spirit as he that spake this day nor had inspiration ever breathed through mortal lips more evidently than it did through his. It goes on to say, It was an epic of life more brilliant and full of triumph than any previous one or than any which could hereafter be. In other words, there's never going to be another sermon this awesome again. He stood at this moment on the very proudest eminence of superiority, to which the gifts of intellect, rich lore, prevailing eloquence, and a reputation of widest sanctity 
could exalt a clergyman in New England's earliest days, when the professional character was of itself a lofty pedestal. Such was the position which the minister occupied. So there he is. He's at the height of his fame, at the height of his um, glory, at the height of his eloquence. And he's going to step down. He's going to walk past the scaffold. And there, there stood Hester holding little Pearl. He's going to make a pause. And then he's going to turn towards the scaffold, stretch forth his arms. And he says, Hester, come hither. Come, my little Pearl. And of course, this is not something that Hester has endorsed. Uh, she's going to go. Um, she's going to go because he asks her to, uh, but she kind of goes unwillingly. And of course, Roger Chillingworth <laughs> realizes exactly what's going to happen, and he tries to stop it before it gets out of control. He's going to stand up and say, "Madman, hold! What is your purpose? Wave back that woman! Cast off this child! All should be well! Do not blacken your fame and perish in dishonor! I can yet save you! Would you bring infamy on your sacred profession?" So all those arguments that he had made earlier in the ch- in the book, he's reversing. Don't bring shame on your profession. And of course, Demsdale's going to re- return it and say, "Tempter, you're too late." The power is not what it was. With God's help, I shall escape thee now. And the idea that this guy had could had him, you know, he had had him uh, in his web, as as my daddy always says. He got him in the web, and he's out. He's out of the web, and he's and he's not going to go back. It doesn't matter what it cost him. Well, the whole book, Chillingworth, has used the concept of gaslighting. Gaslighting is where you are constantly working on another person to alter their understanding of reality. And this is a classic case. Chillingworth had gaslighted Dimsdale so successfully for so long. What do you mean by that? Gaslighting is this idea that when a person expresses their understanding of reality, you disagree with it or you manipulate it. You tell them they've misunderstood it. You're constantly working on them to doubt themselves and to doubt their reality. Chillingworth had worked forever to cause Dimsdale to doubt his reality and his understanding of what was going on around him. And when you see people come out from under gaslighting, as Dimsdale has clearly done in the last few chapters, the uh, the person who's trying to do the controlling and manipulating, because they're intuitive, immediately understands they've lost control and the game is over. And their game is over because he states... There is no one place so secret, no high place, no lowly place where thou could have escaped me, save on this very scaffold. And one last comment I'd like to make to that is that the person who is doing the gaslighting understands the power of secrets and they create secrets with their victim in order to control them. And Dimsdale getting up on a scaffold takes away the only tool that Chillingworth ever had, and that was the power of the secret over him. Which is brings us to another huge symbol in this book. You talk about the big symbols of the book. Of course, I've pointed out that the first symbol that we're introduced to is the idea of nature and the way it interacts with, with the environment and what's going on in the store. Then, of course, the most obvious symbol is the letter A, and Pearl becomes the embodiment of the letter A. But then you have the scaffold, and the scaffold is really important to the plot of the story. It starts on the scaffold. 
The middle of the story is in the scaffold, and it's going to end on the scaffold. But what the scaffold means is somewhat, you know, enigmatic. Uh, I think, and you can tell me if you agree, that there's something about being exposed when you're up there on the scaffold. Whatever you've done is un is is in front of everyone. People stare at the scaffold. If whether you're being killed or whether you're just being humiliated, whatever you've done, everyone knows, and it's there to look at and make do with whatever they want to do. And it's at that place where uh, Chillingworth's power is gone. And to me, being the non-literature person, the scaffold is the place of shame. And you see Hester traverse through her shame and be empowered by facing her shame. And then you have Dimsdale struggling the whole book to ever come to that point. And at the end, when he finally will confront and embrace his shame, it's liberating. And it always happens at the scaffold. And he tried to do it earlier and failed. To him, you know, she wasn't uh, really crazy about uh, him going up there. Uh, she go, He goes up there and she says, basically, they're going to kill us. <laughs> what are you doing? Have you thought about what's going to happen to me? Have you thought about uh, what's going to happen to Pearl? I know not. I know not. We both may die. And little Pearl die with us, which reminds me how much I can't stand that dude. Because even in his confession of truth, he can't get past himself. He's becoming an unlikable character for that continued self-absorption. I mean, I pretty much can take Chillingworth over him, to be honest. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah, and... And, of course, he's going to not care. He's going to brush it off. Oh, God is merciful. Let me now do the will. So he brings it back to himself, which he hath made plain before my sight. For, Hester, I am a dying man, so let me make taste to take my shame upon me. All right, if you must. And, of course, uh, Pearl, partly supported by Hester Prynne and holding one hand of little Pearl, the Reverend Dimsdale turned to the dignified and venerable rulers, and he's going to make this big confession. People of England, I stand upon the spot where seven years since I should have stood here with this woman whose arm more than the little strength wherewith I have crept hither sustains me at this dreadful moment from groveling down my face. Lo, the scarlet letter which Hester wears, ye have all shuddered at it. Wherever her walk hath been, wherever so miserably burdened she may have hoped to find repose, it hath cast a lurid gleam of awe and horrible repugnance about her. But there stood one in the midst of you, at whose brand of sin and infamy ye have not shuddered. And of course, at this point, uh, we see he's going uh, to expose his chest. And it says this, with a convulsive motion, he's going to tear away his ministerial band from before his breast. And it, the text reads like this. It was revealed. Well, what it is, that's bad English. You're never supposed to use a pronoun without telling what the noun is before, but it never does. What's it? It was revealed. But it was irre irreverent to describe that revelation. For an instant, the gaze of the horror-stricken multitude was concentrated on the ghastly miracle. And of course, the time-worn question is, what was it? What was on his chest? Any thoughts? I have no idea. My best guess is going to be some form of a scarlet A. <laughs> I think so. 
I mean, I think he cut it or branded it himself. Well, he did do that self-flagellating thing early on, so there's probably a high likelihood he would But, of course, there's several theories uh, that people talk about in the story, and some people just don't believe it. Like, they just don't see anything there. But, of course, old Chillingworth sees it, and he kneels down behind him with a blank, dull countenance, out of which the life seemed to have departed. Thou hast escaped me. Thou hast escaped me. And he repeats that more than once. And, of course, the we're going to pan again to another character, which is Little Pearl. And Little Pearl kissed his lips. And when that happens, and this is fun to me, it's a different, uh, an upside, if you will, to the story. A spell was broken. A great scene of grief in which the wild infant bore a part had developed all her sympathies, and as her tears fell upon her father's cheek, they were the pledge that she would grow up amid human joy and sorrow, nor forever to battle with the world, but be a woman in it. She's transformed. Because he's able, for one brief half-maybe moment, become a man, you know, he's restored some sort of... um, Something in, in his daughter's life. You know, she had been angry. Well, in psychological sense, he's given her dignity in front of the whole crowd. She has been asking him to go up there for seven years. Well, she intuitively understands that that's what it was going to take to impart dignity to her. And she cries. We haven't really seen that before out of her. We haven't seen any kind of expression very much of of passion at all, not even toward her, well, especially not toward her mother. She'd always just kind of taken her mother for granted and and had been mean to her. But it says this, towards her mother too, Peril's errand as a messenger of anguish was all fulfilled. And then he dies. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, he, he, and he has these last words, the law we broke, the sin here so awfully revealed let those alone be in my thoughts, thy thoughts. I fear, I fear. It may be that when we forgot our God, when we violated our reverence for each other's soul, it was thenceforth vain to hope that we could meet hereafter in an everlasting and pure reunion. And of course, this makes him, me so mad at him. It, it's, it's just unnecessary. He goes on to say, God is merciful, but why is he not merciful here? He has proved his mercy most of all in my afflictions. By giving me burning torture to bear upon my breast. And I, and I don't see God here. I see him. I see a man really self-obsessed, yes. And then, of course, why he wants to die, I don't know. But that's the final word that came forth from the minister's expiring breath. And, of course, the multitude, everyone just has to sit back and go, what did we just see? Right, because it's an extremely dramatic scene. (laughs) There's a lot to take in. So that's where it stands going into the conclusion in the last chapter. Uh, And then the last chapter, the narrator kind of changes the way he talks to the crowd. And we, we, or the, not the crowd, the reader. uh, And we see him preaching and kind of telling us what he wants us to get out of it, which is not something you usually see in a lot of books. Um, He's going to talk about what one of the main themes that he wants us to take from the story, and he says this, 
Be true, be true. Show freely to the world, if not your worst, yet some trait whereby the worst may be inferred. If there's nothing else that Hawthorne wants you to take out of the book, he clearly wants you to take this idea of authenticity. Be your authentic self. You don't have to you know, expose, walk around naked, revealing everything in your heart to everybody, but be true, whatever that means to you. And I think that's a very romantic scene from the time period in which he was writing. Well, if it is, that makes me a romantic because that really resonates. If there's nothing that can bring people, I think he illustrates it and I agree with him. I guess that's why I like this book. If there's nothing that can make you strong, then it isn't, is it not your ability to remain true uh, in spite of what it costs you? And of course it costs her everything. And if you're not true, you see the, the, the reverse in that in Dimsdale's, of course, ultimate death. And then in Chillingworth, also in the last chapter, I love this comment. When, in short, there was no more devil's work on earth for him to do, it only remained for the unhumanized mortal to betake himself, whether his master would find him task enough and pay him his wages duly. So Chillingsworth has lost his reason to even exist now that Dimsdale is gone. And he dies within a year, and it says this, like an uprooted weed. And, of course, there's a symbol. He's been a weed the whole time. Lies wilting in the sun. So Pearl, what happens to her? Her mom takes her away. Chillingworth leaves her a fortune. She's going to go to the old country, become an heiress, get lots of, well, it's assumed that she's going to get lots of money, uh, marry some rich dude, and is never really heard from again. And Hester comes back. After a long time, yeah. She, it, her, no one had ever gone over to her house, but at some point, she comes back. Why does she come back? Oh, my gosh. That, that would have to be a whole other series of debates about why somebody would stay somewhere while they were, where they were so miserable. And yet, I don't know that she was. She was definitely isolated. She was definitely alone. Uh, but there was something there for her. I feel like it suggests that she found a reason and brings me back to what does the A mean? Of course, the A, that's the big question. The book is about the scarlet letter. The A meant adultery. But she took the adultery, the shame that was put upon her. She owned it. And when she did, she made it something different. She made it angelic. She made it mean able. She made it her mission in life. She took the shame and created out of it a life and something to be proud of. And when she had finished taking her daughter and doing what she wanted to, she felt some sort of calling to, to come back and, and be that person again. And she was a merciful person. People came to her with their sorrows. They came to her with for her counsel. They came to her with her mighty troubles, as Hawthorne says. And so she becomes basically the counselor for the town, for those who are afflicted and, and troubled. And what's interesting is that she will die herself. She will be buried next to Dimsdale. And what about the very last line in the book? It's so weird. On her tombstone, it reads this. On a field, sable, the letter A, ghouls. And of course, to translate that into words people know, 
on a field, sable means black, but it's like a noble color. The letter A, ghouls means red. Now, I don't, no one knows what that means. I think it's interesting uh, to point out that King's Chapel, if you go there today, has a sunken tombstone with an A on it. Uh, the woman who's buried there is named Elizabeth Payne, who uh, had a child out of wedlock, was chastised for her community. They accused her of murdering the child. Uh, she pled not guilty. Uh, she was exonerated for her crime because it was found that she wasn't guilty, but they tri- decided to uh, whip her anyway in consideration, as they say, of her fornication, sentenced her to be whipped with 20 stripes. And, of course, she was married to the man, I guess, that she fornicated with uh, after the fact. And so he he makes this woman kind of the, well, critics say she was kind of the inspiration, not the woman, but the but the... The event. The event, the tomb, for whatever he was trying to say about this book. And it's unexplained. What's the connection? What does it mean? Except to say that on a field of blackness and the sense of darkness uh, of humanity, there is that letter A standing red for passion, red for pain, red for whatever. And the A for adultery, the A for angel, the A for Abel. It's really interesting that the very last statement in the whole story is mysterious. Well done. Well done. (laughs) So, Gary, I guess we've concluded the final chapters of The Scarlet Letter, one of the first novels to ever gain traction of any real scale. Tell us what we're going to start reading next week. The next time together, we're going to begin Fahrenheit 451, where America's Cassandra, Ray Bradbury, explores the dangers of censorship, technology, and how easy a trap is entertainment for an apathetic, entitled, and coddled population. All right, let's do it. Thanks for listening, folks. This is Christy Shriver from Memphis, Tennessee. And this is Gary Shriver. Until next time. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.